This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash beer sessions. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special episode. It's Tuesday, May 12th, 2020. And yes, we're at home with COVID in New York City. Uh, we got some special guests coming on today. We're going to talk about 40 years of selling craft beer uh, with Joe Lipa of Merchant Deven, Robert Hodson, and uh, writer Ben Keen. So let's go around and have everyone introduce themselves briefly. Joe? Uh, I'm Joe Lipa. Uh, I've been, uh, long story short, I was a beer, a beer importer, and I actually sold the first case of Samuel Smith as a distributor in 1978. All right. And Robert? Uh, yeah, Robert Hodson. I'm a director of corporate brand management currently for the Sheehan Family Companies for a network of uh, AB and specialty and craft uh, beer throughout the country. Um, been in the beer business, uh, selling beer primarily in New York City uh, for the last 27, 28 years. That's great. So we've got someone from the importer side and the distributor side. And we're going to talk about going back 30, 40 years in the craft beer industry. And our, our good friend, uh, writer Ben Keen. Ben? Hi, Jimmy. Yeah, um, I was born in 1978. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've been a writer and an editor covering the beer industry for a uh, long time, most recently at Beer Advocate Magazine, um, lived in New York, and now I'm in Seattle. And this is fun. We're doing a, on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Uh, check us out and support us during this time. Uh, we're doing remote recordings. Uh, our studios close. And right now, I think Joe's in Florida, Robert's in New Jersey. I'm in the East Village, NYC, and Ben is in Seattle. So we're going to get started. So uh, back in 1978, this little wine... Uh, importer Merchant Event started selling beer or something like that, and Joe Joe Lipa joined up. Joe, um, we're going to talk about four of the legendary brands that, that you guys brought to this country and helped build, and they were kind of, for me, the cornerstones of the early days of craft beer. For me, that started in the 90s. I met people like Robert Hodson working at what was then the Craft Brewers Guild, and some of those brands like Sam Lou Smith were some of the first beers that I tried that actually made me like beer and kind of set me on the path of working in the craft beer industry. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through four of these brands, Samuel Smith, Lindemans, Einger, and Orval, um, from your perspective, and, and the rest of us will join in. So, Joe, tell us about uh, starting out, uh, you know, you, 1978, you had worked for, for Pepsi Bottler, so you kind of knew about consumer goods. How did you start working uh, for Merchant Devin? And tell us about selling Samuel Smith, the for the first time. Well, um, that Pepsi baller had also had another business in the same building, uh, a beer, wine, and spirit business. So I was the, the general manager of all of it. And that's where uh, I was introduced to Samuel Smith. The uh, one-time merchant even was kind of like two companies. And on the East Coast, uh, the people that started with uh, Charlie came, asked me to uh, go partners with them. Um, I couldn't even pronounce the name of the beers, and I was raising three kids, so I passed. Um, <laughs> but um, I got intrigued more and more, and eventually I, I, I joined up uh, to to. I became the first distributor, and then I joined up, become the. Uh, we joined all together uh, to do it. What really set it off was we, we went on a merchant event. We went on a journey looking for beer, um, and we. Uh, who would you go to? The first book out was about was from Michael Jackson. So we contacted Jackson and Jack, Michael um, was a Yorkshire man. So and he was very interested in selling his book in the United States, but none of the beer, no beers were here. So he was our template. He gave us the book. We went over. He brought he, he introduced us to Samuel Smith. And um, once we Samuel Smith uh, was very interested to come to the United States, uh, a lot of some of the other breweries that we do, uh, it legitimized us. 
and other breweries joined in, but we literally followed Michael's um, template to those breweries that we wanted to do. We had it. We had the choice of the litter. We could have taken any one of the breweries in all of Western Europe uh, that that wanted to come to the United States. We refused a bunch of them because we went into the styles of beer business. We didn't go into the selling of just beer. Our backgrounds were wine, so similar Chardonnays, Cabernets from you know different areas, different regions. We did the same thing with Merchant Duvin. We researched the breweries, and then we went to the breweries that didn't produce it at a, a high level, but the iconic breweries that Michael had recommended that produced it at the best level. So all the breweries you represent are family-owned and operated. To this day, they're all keep dropping down to generations, uh, except for the monastic breweries. And uh, that's how it started. With Smith, um, I don't think there's any any um, doubt that Smith literally launched the craft beer revolution in the United States. There was no beer. There was no, no, no such thing as beer, you know, good beer. Heineken was the beer. If you're going to drink import, you do that. So it's, when Smith came, uh, it legitimized uh, a lot of things. And it also, it was the inspiration for many, 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 many of the early craft brewers. I remember with Pete Slowey from Pete's Wicked Ill used to go to sales meetings, the distributor meetings, and hold up a bottle of Sam Smith's uh, Nook Brown Ale because his Pete's Wicked Ill. He says, listen, this is what I want to be. This is not Sam Smith, but this is what I want to be. And that was pretty pretty much everybody. And back then also, you know, you could only sell, uh, there were only breweries were making ales and lagers. There was really no craft bottom fermented beer. So it was very easy, which is like, you know, easier to produce uh, ales. So a lot of when the breweries ramped up, they all did it. Oatmeal Stout was what put us on the map when we brought Oatmeal Stout in was interesting. Uh, Samuel Smith's Oatmeal Stout uh, was pretty much out of existence for many, many years. We saw a bottle at the brewery, and we asked the brewery what it was about. And they said, well, this was a very popular style in the 1800s, and it was promoted as a drink for, for uh, nursing mothers. <laughs> and it was described on the back label as nutritional. So the last oatmeal stout was brewed in, before the Second World War. And we said, let's do it. And we relaunched oatmeal stout back to the world. Who made it famous for us very quickly was a little guy's name, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. He uh, he went around with the dead and he drank fat. He called them fat Sammies because we had them in the 18.7 Imperial bottle and he had it on stage. And of course, that's what really, really uh, helped us out immensely in the beginning. So um, Joe, Joe, let's step back. So times were very different then. So uh, one thing I read, it said at the time, so Heineken was, that was like the top import in America, right? When I walked into a store, in, in, I walked into a store in 1978-82, back in then. Heineken was the most expensive beer on the shelf, $12 a case. We walked in the door with a beer called Samuel Smith's Oatmeal Stout, $32 a case. We were shown the door in most cases uh, because people thought we were nuts. But we knew we, we had something. And we merchant of them developed their brands on premise. We really didn't even care about going into stores. We connected it to the food industry very quickly. Uh, we were on food shows. I was I've been on uh, Julia Child. We did we did beer food pairings. We were the first company to do beer dinners, and it just legitimized and raised the level of beer. And where today, as you all know, beer is now the new wine, right? Yeah. And Joe, tell us about an early beer dinner that you were part of. What were some of the dishes and maybe where, where was it? Well, one of the first ones was uh, Windows in the World at the World Trade Center with, uh, the, you may know the name, Kevin Zarelli, very famous uh, wine sommelier who contacted me actually and wanted to do uh, a, a tasting of a beer dinner. And it was really the first one there. And Robert can tell you, we were doing beer dinners in many, many high-end restaurants, not so much the pubs. Um, and we just, we paired up different beers with the different foods that they accompanied. And it was, it was a home run. It was absolutely a home run. Wow. Yeah, we Robert. did, we did uh, beer dinners at, at um, I'm sorry, I don't, don't mean to step on your toes, but we did beer dinners at Waldorf Astoria with John Doherty, yeah. uh, who was the executive chef there at the time. And he would do, 
incredible uh, food and, and beer pairings. And, and that really was just, you know, just sort of elevated, you know, beers like Samuel Smith and some early domestic crafts uh, to a level that, you know, the macros and, and, you know, European imports like Heineken uh, could not achieve. They just didn't have the capacity to do so. The reason why the higher, the reason why the higher end restaurants were very interested in it, because first of all, they could care less about beer back then. They didn't want to sell a bottle of Heineken. I'm not disparaging Heineken or any, they didn't want to sell a bottle of any beer because they, it wasn't profitable to them. So what we did is we said, listen, we have this product, a story behind it. We said, we, Merchant of Inn never sold beer. We sold, we sold culture. So we sold the culture, and that's what the chefs loved, was to hear about the stories behind these breweries. And when we said to them, look it, we can get you with selling a beer at, the first, at your first and second level wine by the glass price. When they heard that, they went, I'm in. And that's what really lies. They were making eight, nine dollars a bottle on a bottle of beer. I mean, they they were just they were thrilled. And of course, the quality of the product and it. Yeah, we have restaurants. I mean, you can tell, ask Robert how many people went to a restaurant because they sold Lindemans. It was phenomenal what was going on. So uh, connecting to that food, the high end food industry is what really launched Merchant Duvet. The stores came after. We then went to the fine wine shops. You know, we didn't go to the general supermarket. We didn't even go into a supermarket, though we did. And Robert was with me when we, uh, a guy named Kevin Schilke at the Food Aquarium got interested in. He was the first one. And I'll never forget it. They did a lead article in the food section in the New York Times with me and Kevin in the aisle of a food aquarium. I think it was on Third Ave, um, where there was actually an upscale beer section. Uh, it was the first one ever in New York City in the supermarket. And of course, like I said, today, it's, come, it's the, sec- the sections are crazy. <laughs> hey, hey, Joe, let me, um, so and either Robert or Joe. So Robert, in the context of a distributor, you know, did Merchant Event help steer you guys at whatever it was, Union or Craft Brewers Guild or Sheehan's, into craft beer, were they kind of helping lead the way for you guys? No, I mean, um, at that point, uh, in my days, I was at Brooklyn Brewery at the time, this is mid nineties and, um, you know, Brooklyn Brewery and Sierra Nevada and Paul Honor were three of our big brands, but, uh, the merchant of end portfolio was, uh, it's kind of a portfolio unto itself. And to Joe's point, uh, that was more of a, a true hand sell and a wine sell. I mean, it was hard enough to sell domestic craft back then, trust me. Um, but the merchant event portfolio was on a completely different level from a price perspective, um, you know, trying to get people to wrap their head around the amount of money we were asking for cases of, of Samuel Smith uh, and Lindemans and, and Orval and others. That was that was a hill to climb. And But we sold it, uh, to Joe's point, like you would sell wine. I mean, it was just a different experience. And then what really sort of change things along that food and beer pairing was it was really these types of beers that really started to influence how chefs built menus and how it related to the beers on the menu and so they would they would create uh, winter spring summer fall menus and a lot of it would revolve around what beers would be featured at the restaurant at that time so you could have so the consumer could go in and have a complete dining experience getting a meal and then you'd have a wait staff who's educated and trained to say I have the perfect beer to pair with that meal. And so they would elevate that experience. And it became, you know, you have restaurateurs like Danny Meyer who embrace it from the beginning. And it just sort of changed the whole culture of beer and kind of really started this whole um, uh, movement uh, for a lot of craft breweries to uh, craft breweries around the country. I don't know that there's one who doesn't say our beer goes perfect with food. Um, but that really was uh, one of the things that Merchant Event contributed significantly to to the whole culture of craft beer was that idea of pairing beer with food and having the true dining experience the way wine had done it for for years. And let's so was, uh, let's get Ben and Ben. Uh, do you want to say anything about the this early experience or Sam Smith? Yeah, I <clears throat> I think you're right about its uh, influence. Um, I out here in Seattle, and I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time um, talking with the Finkels, who you know, um, obviously were instrumental in, um, yeah, both in uh, starting 
starting it and then yeah going on to going on to found pike which just had their 30th anniversary so i think that's super cool just uh you know <clears throat> to look back on how far we've come well you know samuel smith uh as a brewery it's very interesting uh, jimmy you were mentioned there's so many beers out there today but i am fascinated uh to this day that the name recognition to Samuel Smith from the public. And here, here I think is the, the outline reason. I don't know if you know the background of Smith, but Samuel Smith is a very, very traditional brewery. They're still using Yorkshire squares since 1758, the Wellwater 1758. Okay. They're the only brewery in the world still fermenting in those Yorkshire squares. They're the only brewery in the world with two full-time Coopers. Luckily, you can find one. They, I don't even know if there is a brewery that has Coopers that make the casks for, the, for their cask eels. They're still delivering in Tadcaster in the area their beer to the stores via the Yorkshire horses. They make home delivery. Now, with this COVID, they took it one step further. And if you get up on their internet, you'll see it. It's getting a ton of press is they are delivering to people's home with the Yorkshire horses, making home deliveries to the people. They own 200 pubs. Those pubs are as traditional. Have you ever been to London, uh, uh, Cheshire Cheese, where Charles Dickens used to hang out? Everything is traditional. Here's something you'll never see in the United States. You ever been to a pub where there is no music? Ever been to a pub where your cell phone is not allowed? Go to Samuel Smith's pubs. You can't use your phone. you got to sit there like the old-fashioned days and talk to those people one-on-one, no phones, no, te- no televisions, nothing. <laughs> I'll tell you, Joe, I, I want to go there. And I was lucky a, a few years ago you brought the scion of the family, the yeah. young Sam Smith, whether he was the fifth or the seventh over, to learn the business. I know he spent some time at Union Beer. Um, well, you know, well, you know, the millenniums are turned. See, our problem is getting to these millenniums with the beer because there's so much clutter out there, right? They all want to drink local, 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 which is fine. You know, but as I always say, just because a beer is local doesn't mean it's high quality. Just because it's an import doesn't mean it's high quality. The consumer will make that decision down the road. But the millenniums love these stories. Like Sam Smith, when they hear this story, they're in. Yeah. So, Joe, one big thing that you guys – you set your portfolio with best in class. What is yes. best in class? Well, best in class is beers that are considered in not. By the way, we don't slant anything. In other words, we don't go and say something that's that's not made public by by a third party. Our beers are recognized in in just about any level of trade press or trade level as best in class. Now, there are other beers, competitors of ours that are in that category, too, and I'm glad they are because the more the merrier, and it just raises the level of the beer. But that's what best in class means is somebody else is touting it. You go to ratebeer.com. Go to Beer Avenue. You see the ratings on our beers. They're through it. Look, Iinger, <laughs> if there's any, if there's, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> there's no highly, more highly acclaimed brewery in the world than that bad, that bad boy right now. So, uh, we're lucky and fortunate that we do have this this quality. We sell, like I said, we sell the story, we sell the quality. We don't sell beer. Joe, and you're a great salesman too. Um, I saw you sent us a photo of all the beers in front of you. So, what are you drinking right now? Are you drinking a Samuel Smith? I just had an Orvel a, a little while ago. The one you saw in the picture, I was drinking that, and I'm now drinking uh, Samuel Smith's Yorkshire Stinga. Okay, and yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you know that beer. It's uh, we we they decided they were going to do this, uh, and what they did was they took their uh, century-old uh, oak casks and uh, and, and soak soaked that beer in those casks for a couple of years, and we released uh, maybe three thousand cases a year to the general public. Wow, that's great. And then in terms of best in class, Robert, uh, what are you drinking? You're drinking a different merchant event. Yeah, I'm drinking West Mall Double right now. So, and you you can look up Merchant Divan list listeners. There's so many great brands in there, Pincus and and West Mile and so many others. So we're gonna keep the conversation going and and 
and hey, jump Jimmy, along. Can I, just, can I just say something? This would be interesting to your uh, view, uh, readership. Uh, I mean, your uh, listening, listening people. I don't know if you know the Melbourne Brothers, the brewery, okay? That's the brewery where the Smith is pr- producing the organic fruit beers. And what that was, there was a family down in uh, Stanford, and uh, they went out a bit. They said they went out a bit, but they wanted to sell it. And Smith was very interested. It was established in 1825. Why I bring it up is all the brewing equipment, okay, has been restored, and it's run by a steam engine. The steam engine provides the mechanical power to drive the malt mill in the mash tons. Okay, there's even a cool ship. There's they're literally spontaneous ferment in some sense. This is the cool. This is talk about this is typical Smith stuff. You know, they're you gonna know, do Joe, you're, you're a great salesman because I almost always want to say it's too good to be true, but I know <laughs> how good the beers are. So, for example, yeah. I want to ask you about when you first started the decision to in, in bottles. You why did you put the Sammy Smith beers in clear clear bottles? It was an educational. It was a. a dis, we decided to do that, and at the brewery, they really didn't want to do that. We were only in twelve ounce bottles, and we we, we when we first came out it was pill, nut, oat, and taddy. The only those four beers, all in clear glass. We did that for educational purposes. Okay, for instance, when I stood up and, and did a seminar or, or a training, and I put a, a bottle of nut brown ale. And, and put it up there, and I said, you know, this is not, this is not, because back then people thought that was dark beer. <laughs> Brown ale, pale ale was dark beer. So we did it for visuals. Also, we did it is the beer just resonated out of that bottle. When you put that clear bottle on a table in a fine dining restaurant, man, people say, what is that? It just, it, it just brought us out. We weren't a brown bottle, we were a clear bottle. So we kind of stunned everybody when we did it, and we did it for was, I guess, marketing reasons more than anything. Yeah, and we're going to keep touching on that because it's kind of part of the genius is that not only you had the best-in-class beers, but you guys really marketed them really well. So let's let's go to the next brewery. So Lindemann's, um, we, we've actually had – recently I was in touch with them. We did a show this winter about Lambic beers. Yeah, yep. And um, the, the two current family members of Lindemann's were very kind and sent me a, a letter uh, and a bottle. So I have a bottle of the Lindemann's the Cuvée Rene Ode Creek 2019, which is their traditional Lambic. But I'd like to know, so when, tell me about the early days of, of Lindemann's. So back then, you know, these classic Lambics were tart. How did you guys come up with Frambois? Tell us about those early days of creating and selling Lindemann's because by the, it became the most popular beer. And, and when I opened my old Jimmy's number 43 in 2005, Lindemann Frambois was the most popular beer in the city. So, Well, Lindemann's, uh, for about three or four years, was out selling Samuel Smith in New York City. That's how big it became. But here's the story on Lindemann's. Lindemann's was uh, uh, producing the traditional, traditional sour beers. Once again, these are family-owned and operated breweries. You can't make a living and support a family of the Lindemann size by producing sour beer. There's not enough volume, Okay. So Renee Lindemann made a conscientious choice to go to the sweet side, okay? Get it a little bit more accessible, if you would say, okay? And that was ingenious move by his part. So when we came to the United States, we were brought Lindemann's Frambois. Uh, I mean, it was just, well, Robert can tell you, I mean, just, this was volumes and volumes of beer. Every restaurant had to have it. It was like the wow beer. No one ever heard of a fruit beer, okay, and then spontaneously fermented uh, like that. So, but you know, I don't know if you realize it, but if you go to Belgium, 82, uh, 62% of all the beer sold, lambic sold in Belgium is Creek, okay, and then it goes to Pesh, and then Frambois is only 9%. The Frambois phenomenon was, is, was the United States. Now, I'll give you a good little story on Pesh. Yeah, you guys remember well, I mean, some of you the Kuiper peach tree schnapps? Well, that became very big in the United States. And I took, I bought a bottle, got on a plane, flew over to Renee. Renee says, "What are you here for?" I said, "I need a pe- I need a peach beer and fast." And that was the start of a peach a peach beer lambic in the world. Is me bringing that bottle of the Kuiper peach tree schnapps over there. Today, it's 15% of the Belgian lambic sales is pesh. 
from so I thank the Kuiper Petrie schnapps for that. <laughs> but but they they also it, it's it's more than a marketing. It's a different product than traditional lambic, right? It's like it's ale blended with fruit. Tell us a little bit about yeah. that formula. Well, what they they're making this they're making uh, the same way they made their other their their, their traditional, except they have to add a fruit uh, a sweetener. Okay, I mean there was no uh, it had to be done. Um, we use stevia in that beer uh, because it, you have to have. We wanted to make sure it was natural, and they added some stevia into it, and that's because that's where it became on the sweet side, and they used the, the with the juices. So, but I, I got here's something very interesting to you. Lindemans, as we all know, has been um, criticized. I'll say, uh, I'll call it by the beer geek community for not 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 being traditional, right? Oh, we don't make the sours like you know uh, Decom and Tilquin, right? Well, let me tell you a little story. Lindemans is a very Lindemans Cuvée Rene. Their Oud Creek. We came out with the Spot and Basil project with Mickler. Is a Lindemans is considered to be very high quality. And, and, and a testament to that from the brewers are, okay, is blenders, okay? There are lambic producers and there are blenders. Blender, blenders ha, will buy from Lindemans their beer for their blending. And I'll name some names. Hanson's, Three Fontaine, Tilquin. And when Detroit uh, broke down one time, they did it. And then there's a real... Up and coming lambic. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's called Bookadier, a lamb, oh, yeah. cool lambic. Where's he buying his lambic from? Lindemans. So I really, really, really take umbrage when I hear you know people say Lindemans doesn't produce traditional. They do both sides of it. Taylor Star was in Western Massachusetts. That's where I live, and I went into a store, and this this buyer in that store is absolutely hates Lindemans sweet beer. Hates Lindemans because of the sweet side of it. Okay. And I was in the store, and I pulled a bottle of Trey Fontaine. And I said, hey, Jeff, you're selling Lindemans now. And he looked at us, what the hell are you talking about? I says, and I told him I just told you that story. And from now on, <laughs> he, <laughs> he understood it. So I really have to, you know, make sure the, the beer geeks understand that Lindemans is world class in many ways. And, you know, the, it's, the sweet Lambic is what it is, but it's 98% of the total volume of lambic sold even in Belgium is the sweet side. Yeah, and 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 Ben, uh, do you want to say anything about that? Well, yeah, I would just be curious to know. Uh, you talked about uh, millennials, and you know, obviously, the number of breweries that have exploded in the U.S. compared to, you know, the early '80s. Um, what it's like selling and distributing these excellent, but you know old traditional beers in, in a market in 2020? It's a great question. Great question. It's tough. Okay. How many oatmeal stouts are like, I, I think I lost track after I saw a thousand of them. Okay. <laughs> it goes on and on, but let me tell you something about these breweries. And I don't, I just, there are other breweries that we compete against are in the same class as us. Okay. When I say this and I, uh, okay, these breweries aren't going away. As a matter of fact, there's only one brewery. I'm sorry, maybe three breweries of the of the top specialty volume breweries that need the United States market. The rest of them don't need it. There's not one Trappist brewery outside of Chimay that needs the United States volume. We have to beg Orval for beer. Okay, Westmall could send their beer right out the door. We wouldn't. They wouldn't miss a trick in the United States. Okay, so for long for for existence, they're not going to have a problem there. But, of course, we want the United States. But I'll tell you a good story. Robert, you met him, uh, Francois de Hearn. His family donated the land for the brewery, the Orval Brewery, to produce that brewery after it went out, you know, after the French Revolution. His family gave the brewery the land to produce, uh, to, to build that, rebuild the brewery. And Francois was the export manager of um, uh, of, of the brewery for years. He's same age as me, 70, just retired like me. I'm going to do it. Um, anyway, he, um, he was in, he, we were in Boston, the beer, uh, beer advocate used to have, has those shows in Boston and he was a guest speaker. And there's a, there's a writer, Andy Crouch, Andy Crouch. 
Andy Crouch said the uh, who was the moderator, and he said to her, he said to Francois, he says, Francois, with all these beers, uh, you know, American beers, aren't you guys afraid, you know, of the business? And stoically, Francois just says to he goes, Andy, we've been around since ten forty. We're not worried. <laughs> so, and that's my point. These breweries don't uh, they don't need it. <laughs> Let's say this. This is a good time. We're going to take a short break anyways for a commercial break. So we'll take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. Learn more at square.com slash go slash beer sessions. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're doing a special COVID at home show. We've got Joe Lipa from Merchant Devin talking 40 years of selling craft beer in the United States. Uh, Support heritageradionetwork.org. Our our good friend Robert Hodson, who's also worked in the industry a long time on the distributor side, um, he's worked closely with Joe and Merchant Devin. Robert, uh, I know you had a question for Joe. Yeah, I was going to say, Joe. Uh, you know, we've known each other for, I don't know how many years now, 25, almost 30 years. Um, If you know what, if you knew then what you know now, uh, is there anything you would have done differently with the brewer partners that you brought on board uh, in terms of how you brought them to the States and and what you would have done differently with them? How how might that have changed? Um, That's a great question. Uh, these breweries have become family to Merchant Event. Okay. And what I mean by that is I've had uh, the Pincus, their family, you know, they've come to our house. The Lindemans have come to our house. My kids have gone to their homes. I had a, uh, you remember, uh, what's his name? He got married at Traquair House. So he's a beer guru. I forgot. So the point is, is that we have relationships with these breweries. It goes much deeper than making decisions. We have refused. So we get we get inundated with beer, right? particularly right now. We're getting inundated with breweries that want to come into the portfolio because they know that we're sustainable. Uh, but we're not going to duplicate. We're not going to. And if now, more than ever, if we went and started to take other beers in, it would take away from all the years of what we built with Smith, Lindemans, Iyengar, all these breweries. We're not going to do that. It's not fair to them. And so we don't do it. And we got our hands full. And uh, let's, okay, Joe, so we're going to move to the next brewery now. Um, so you, you've picked four breweries. Uh, they're iconic. Uh, we're going to go to Iyengar. But the start with the question is, all of the Merchant Devin beers that come from family or Abbey-owned breweries, um, it, why is that? And then give us an intro to Iyengar in their family why we well first of all we want breweries that we want we wanted breweries i mean we were building their business right we wanted to make sure they weren't going to get sold out okay i mean i'll give you a good example look at new where's newcastle produced today who owns it heineken who produces it lagunitas bass ale on the label made in the first pale what a, what a sacrilege the first pale ale made in the world and now it says made in the United. It's made right across the street from in Newark. <laughs> so with, that's what we didn't want to get involved with. We didn't want to get with breweries that were big. We wanted small ones that we could build relationships with where it's more than just sale. These breweries are more than just selling beer. A lot of these breweries are just happy right now to just to be able to sustain and to say, hey, we have a relationship with Merchant Event. 
We're proud of that, and they're proud of that too. Anger is very special. There is no brother. Anger for us or is without a doubt the biggest beneficiary of the craft beer movement in the United States. Years ago, Anger had an old brewery. It always produced good beer. And then in the 90s, the mid-90s, they, they decided to build a new brewery. And the one thing I always said about Anger and the old brewery was I love the beers, but I don't like the finish on them. I just, it was my palate. And I heard that from other people. Michael Jackson even said, I guys love the Anger brewery. I love the family. He said, I just wish they would get a better finish on the beers. Well, if you look up and get on the website, you'll see it. You'll see Anger's brewery. It's probably the most modern brewery in Bavaria. Okay. And, and that's where the quality, and that's when the brand started to take off when that new brewery started. The Insulkheimers are world-class people. Uh, they're personal friends and family. And this brewery, there's no, just look up on Rape Beer. Look, look under Doppelbach, you know. Look under uh, Wheat Beer. Look under any one of their brewery, uh, any one of their styles, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So they've been a huge beneficiary of this because quality resonates. And the kids, the millenniums and these kids, they love to get in and go into a store and they go get on their ratings. And I'm looking for a Doppelbach. Ooh, hello. Celebrator? Can't find any better. I'll tell you how strong Celebrator is. I was in um, Maryland in a, in a bar, uh, a pub. I was uh, with a sales manager of our wholesaler down there. And he was one of our last sales calls. And he says, Joe, don't even bother coming into this guy. He's, he's not only uh, does American beer, he only does mid-Atlantic beers. He won't even, he won't even talk to you. It's okay. I'm always because I'm always interested in looking at quality, and I, I respected that. I mean, at least the guy had a you know had, had a, has a has a has a goal. So we went in, we got talking, and um, his wife was behind the bar, and he wasn't there. And we introduced me, and immediately he comes behind. He goes, "Who are you?" And I said, "I'm Joe Leaper from Merchant of Inn." And I and I wasn't trying to sell him. I just had our classic brewing styles brochure. And I handed it over to him, and he looked, yeah, well, he, goes, he goes, oh, God, I like, I love some of these beers. He says, but I only do Mid-Atlantic, and that's, I'm going to stay that way, blah, blah, blah. So I needed an impact beer, I, and I, it was kind of a, a challenge to me. So I said, Kyle, here's the deal. I'm going to mail you a bottle of Celebrator Doppelbach. I says, you don't really have a great dark lager. You got 32 taps, but you don't have something in this class. Oh, don't bother. Send it to me, blah, blah, blah. So I sent him the bottle and the glass, blah, 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 and until he sold that uh, sold that uh, pub, uh, I think three years ago, he had only a Mid-Atlantic beers and Celebrator Doppelbach because <laughs> of the quality. And, and you'll see that all the time. And when you get into Germans, and uh, Robert will tell you, the German, the German beers in general uh, are really hot now. Pilsners are coming back, and we're sitting with on your uh, pills on draft now. And that was another thing was – that new brewery gave us something that we didn't have, a draft beer component. Now we have Einger uh, on draft for all. We got the Maybach out right now. You know, we've never been able to do that. The Oktoberfest is sold out. We can't even talk about Oktoberfest to new accounts for seven consecutive years. Joe, that's that's great. Um, I love I love Celebrator. And that was, for me, also the icon of the 2000s for me. That was the iconic Doppelbach. You know, you, whenever you go looking for any other Ader beer, you know that with the traditionally Doppelbachs, the name for each brewery ends with an Ator. But I always still go back to Celebrator. Let's go to the Brauweiss. I, I, so let's talk about a specific style. as The Eyinger Brauweiss. So around 2005 and six, I had a, a beer bar with... A pretty good draft beer selection, mostly imports and a lot of your beers. And I had to have a half a Weizen type beer. And for the longest time, Brauweiss was the only like Weiss beer that really cut it for me and, and my customers. It, it, it had the right body, the right flavor. Um, tell me about that style and, and how that became, to me, that became one of the iconic ones they made. It, it's all about the yeast, my friend. See, uh, when you say wheat beer to me, it's the it's the banana clove. That's the hook. Okay, for instance, American breweries aren't using that yeast strain. That some of the Bavarian. By the way, Anger 
Uh, I, I consider there's two top weepers in, in maybe in the world, I'll say the world or in Germany, and that's Einger and Schneider. Those are t- to me, and that's our competitor. Those to me are in a class of their own. And they're all using that same yeast strain. And that's what the difference is, is that banana clove coming off that yeast strain. And that's the, that's the difference between a lot of wheat beers, the commercial German wheat beers that are made by the big German breweries and or an American brewery. The closest one to it is uh, she, she's in Pennsylvania, the brewery in Pennsylvania. Stouts. 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 Carol Stout makes a great one. She and she knew. She knew. She 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 paid attention to what Einger was doing. Yep. So that that was the use. Uh, ben, do you want to say uh, join in here? <laughs> You're laughing. Um, I hear you laughing. It's a great story. No, he is. I mean, I feel like you could do Joe Leap a week on uh, Beer Sessions Radio. <laughs> it's more than enough for no, one episode. I always said Merchant of Inn was not a uh, was not a job. It was a lifestyle. <laughs> and then Robert um, Einger, for you guys, uh, any when did you first start selling it, picking it up? Um, any anything you want to mention? Yeah, I'm sorry, Jimmy, you just woke me up. I was, uh, I, was I almost fell asleep listening to Joe. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, you heard him too many times. Sorry, Joe, I wouldn't wouldn't be wouldn't be talking to Joe if I didn't throw a jab. Uh, no, I mean uh, Einger was part of that portfolio in the mid '90s. Continued on. I think Joe's right. When you look at, um, you know, German wheat beers, uh, there are two, you know, that uh, exemplify the classic wheat beer character, and that's Einger and Schneider. And that's what I've been selling. Those are my two uh, favorite uh, Hefeweizens. The problem today with Hefeweizens is that um, the, the American consumers, particularly the young consumers, 21 to 31 for the most part, don't really recognize the style or 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 lean to it. I mean, it's all about the IPAs and the pale ales. And and it's unfortunate because it's such an iconic style, uh, whether you're talking about, you know, Hefeweizen's or Brauweisse or, or Doppelbach's, you know, like an Aventinus, etc. It's just hard to find a young consumer who can relate to it and understand the, the, the beauty of that style of beer. Uh, so it makes it a little bit more difficult to sell. You can find it in some better restaurants, better certainly better beer bars, but by and large, um, it's, 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 you know, it's hard to come by, but if you do find it, uh, I recommend you open a bottle. You know, it's a true story. What you're saying too, uh, what we're seeing though is as you, you probably know, Robert, cause you're the distributor pills, the style pills is on fire and that's what the millenniums are doing. And so we're, we're ramping up draft on the anger pills now, and we're going to start really paying attention to it because pills is back but it's going to be good pills. Guys, I think you just need to tell them that, you know, the vice beers were the original hazy beers. They're not. Yeah, they certainly were. That's your, that's your hook right there. <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah, Ben. And um, so, you know, it's very interesting. You've been through so much, Joe. Um, you know, what would you tell someone who's trying to get into the industry today? Stay out of it. <laughs> Is it still is it still about but is it still about selling consumer goods? I mean that's what well, you yeah, came I mean, from. Like I said, yeah. I, I, it are there going to be trends? You know, there's going to be trends. Up if I was going to give, and I have, but I just had a conversation with a person that was asking me. As you know, there's a lot of people out of jobs now, and I'm, we're getting a lot of requests for obviously for jobs. Uh, but this this came from a different one. This one this person was not interested really in the beer business. But he's a friend of a, a, a daughter of a friend of mine, and he, he said he asked me to, to talk to her. And I told her, I said, "Look, you know, she's got a great background." And I says, "When you do this, you need to stay with quality producers. Don't go and look unless you want to gamble, you know, and and find the next uh, coming of Christ be, uh, product, uh, which right now I don't think is going to happen. I think we can all agree." that with this COVID-19, there's going to be more of a movement. I don't care. I'm not talking beer. I'm talking about every consumer good. There's going to be a national a, a national move to buy American products. Would you all agree? Because of this, for sure. And I told her, I said, don't go into the import category. Go into the 
American category if you're going to be looking because I think that's where the next you know that's where that's where that's where it's going to be. Okay, now we're going to go back 1978. Uh, the first beer uh, from your portfolio that you tried, you said was Orval. So one thing I know about Orval is that if if you've been drinking it for 40 years, I mean. It, it's a mystery still. It must be like a different beer every year. I've sat in on vintage or Val tastings. There's a magic to it. Um, but did it ever did it ever not do well? I mean, tell us the, the sales history of that brand. Well, I'll give you a little history to Bel- the, the Trappist breweries in Belgium. First of all, you know, there's, there's six of them there, right? Uh, I don't know if you know what the volume levels are, but uh, Chimay and Westmall are the two big guns, right? Chimay sells a lot in the United States. Uh, Rob, what do you think about 25% of it from of their hecklers? It's a, it's, a it's a big number. Westmall is as big as Chimay is, and they're up in the northern part of Bill. They sell a lot of beer into the Flanders region and into uh, the Netherlands. And if, if we could get, we only can get 3% of Westmall's production. Okay. So if we could get the production that Chimay gives uh, the United States importer here, uh, and if you well, if you took out the United States volume, Westmall actually worldwide would sell without sell Chimay. Not that I'm disparaging; I love Chimay. Okay, I'm just trying to give you the facts to it. Now, what's interesting is the hectoliters to those. Okay, and this is where Orval plays. Now you're talking about Chimay, who has draft beer, different styles of beer. Westmall, same thing. They they sell a lot of Westmall draft. Okay. I don't know if you were, they do about a hundred and both of them do about 122, 123,000 barrels of beer. But here is the best model of a brewery in the world. A little brewery called Orval, 70,000 hectoliters in demand every day, one bottle, no draft. 70,000 hectoliters come out of that little pin bottle. You think about that. That's the demand for it. Orval, if you, if you really look in, in Belgium and you really segment it, if you go look at the middle of Belgium um, down to the south in the Ardennes and stuff, that's, that's, that's Chimay's Bay. They sell a lot of beer from Brussels south. Westmall controls a lot of it from Brussels north because they're up in the Netherlands area. Orval is the people's beer. I, someone said to me, what's, or, what's Orval do? I said, Bud Light. <laughs> I said they're the people here, <laughs> and they want it. And they want. And you ask about the vintages, okay? The younger, the younger beer, the younger vintage, okay, is got a little fruity. And you only get the younger beer, by the way, in Belgium because they're selling it so much. They're turning it over so fast, okay. I remember when we used to bring Orval into the United States, and I looked at that, the, the label, and we were we were we were still. Robert still had some in his warehouse. They were three, three and a half, four years old. Okay, although the bottle says five years. If you the bottle I drank today, the label says it was bottled on eight, uh, a seven two two thousand nineteen. That's unheard of. That we got. I got this beer in my hand less than a year later, and it says best served before uh, two thousand twenty three nine two same uh, seven two. So the younger one creates a little bit more bitterness, okay? Uh, the older one, and, and the people in Belgium love it as fresh as possible. I'm talking about six months. That's what they want. The beer really doesn't change. Uh, the beer gets brighter after six months, okay? I don't know if you know what they do is they put this, the third dosage of, uh, it's thrice fermented, and the third dosage is brat is wild bread. I don't know if you guys knew that. And what they do with that is they they put that uh, in the bottle and then the beer goes into the warm room and where a lot of warm rooms like uh Westmall that you know they're 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 aging their beer for a long time or about within 6 months it's out it's out in the field. It's being sold. So it doesn't really uh the, the that bread keeps that beer um Alive in that bottle, big time, and that's they release that beer much sooner than some of the other uh, bottle conditioned beers. But Joe, Joe, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up soon. But let me ask something. So you told us about s- selling Sam Sam Smith. 
and you know working with the restaurants and, and how you really built that market what was it like when you first were selling Orval? In pot, well, only fine dining restaurants. Only fine dining restaurants. We couldn't give that beer away to anybody else. But you see, this beer has got such a wine kinship to it. It's such a food palate to it. When we walked into a fine dining restaurant, you went into Danny Meyer, guys, and, got, and you put that in front of them. Hey, we sell to some restaurants five, six cases a month, seven cases a month in some restaurants today. And I know a lot of it doesn't go to consumers. It's going to the chefs. And it, it, it remains today, the same thing. <laughs> it, it is a beer. I don't know if you know this. There is no, all the beers are out there. Bring it in. Try to find a beer that tastes like it is a one-of-a-kind beer. I'll tell you what Michael Jackson said about it best. Jackson, we were in Philadelphia, and Michael was getting, you know, he had Parkinson's disease. Everybody thought, you know, he was alcoholic. And that wasn't true. Those, he had park. I don't know if you guys knew that. He had Parkinson's. And he didn't tell too many people uh, how bad it was. And he never would. But we were doing with uh, Tom Peters, and we did a big event with with, with Michael. And uh, everyone kept saying, you know, asking him questions. And they said, okay, what's your one beer, Michael? And everyone, you know, rah, rah, Mike, Mike. And he goes, Orval. And that's the tribute to Orval. You know, it's uh, it's something very special. It's, I, I call it girlfriend-boyfriend when you first drink it. You may not like it. You're going to have to get used to it. But when you do, you're going to get hooked. Wow. Joe, that, that's great, man. Um, thanks for these little sharing these little stories with us. And I, I think we're going to have to do another show with you, too. Um, Robert, anything else you want to add about working with Joe or Merchant Event all these years? Uh, uh, I spoke. Uh, every time I got together with Joe, I said about as much as I did today, which is very <laughs> Joe, Joe usually does all the talking. Jimmy, can you – I asked – I sent you – the question I wanted to ask Robert was, from his point of view, from his look, is this question, Robert. What do you foresee the future of the craft beer movement going forward, one? And two, what do you see for the specialty – because you handle most of the specialty imports. Uh, the same question going going forward. Uh, you know, Joe. I uh, honestly, that's a that's a really hard question. I mean, we're in. Uh, as I've been saying to people, uh, there's nobody right now who has the playbook for the current crisis we're in. Um, I, I fear for the craft beer industry. I, obviously, I've been in this business for a long time. I've worked with Jimmy for a long time, Joe. I've known you for seems like forever. Um, it's it's really heartbreaking when uh, I see whether it's um, bar and restaurant owners uh, who I know a lot of and have become uh, close personal friends with many of them, uh, whether it's a uh, brewery owners uh, who I know and have become close friends and, and, and colleagues with um, this is a very difficult time. And I, I fear for a lot of them. I fear for their livelihoods. I fear for their business. Um, I think it's a shame. I think it's, you know, getting, you know, bring this thing full circle uh, when, you know, Merchant Van and Sam Smith were part of the revolution of craft beer early on and to see it come to this where, and you look around the country, you know, 8,000 plus breweries. Um, it's really a great time for beer and to see so many of those people who, um, who realize their life uh, dreams uh, have them torn apart by something that's completely out of their control, out of everyone's control, is difficult. So where this goes from here, I, honestly, Joe, I, I don't even want to speculate. It's it's um, it's it's difficult, but I, I do think that when we do climb out of this, uh, people will want to drink craft beer. That love and that passion for the product will not go away. People will want to drink specialty imports like Sam Smith and Iyengar and Orval, uh, which, by the way, isn't really great until it's five years old. I agree. Um, I got vintages of it. Still, I agree. Tons of it. I got 18, 19-year-old vintages here. But Robert, let me ask you this. What, what, what would you think, What do you if we didn't have COVID, what do you think the future of the craft beer industry would be? Just in general, if let's take COVID out and just where would where were you seeing it before COVID? I guess that's my question. It's um, you know, I, I, what I saw was, you know, younger drinkers like, you know, I've, I've been saying recently that if you ask a 21 to 31 year old drinker in New England, um, it, it, what they think of the West Coast IPA, they wouldn't probably wouldn't know what you're talking about. They're not familiar with a bright you know, um, malt backbone, 
aggressively hop IPA. They're familiar with really upfront, effervescent, you know, hop forward, um, milkshakey, cloudy IPAs. That's what they know. So there's a um, the the way the industry is going is uh, was going at the time was just very almost uh, disjointed, and it became a point where uh, breweries were creating beers to keep up with the Joneses, uh, and consumers were really driving. Uh, the beer styles. And it was, it's, you know, the idea that consumers would walk into a store and look for something they haven't had, whether than buy something they know they've had and trust and like. And it became, you know, for a beer distributor, even for brewers, it became challenging. And, and uh, I think that, that most beer, craft beer drinkers um, really don't understand classic beer styles, don't necessarily appreciate them um as much as they used to and that's what was sad for me is to see you know my desert island beer is here in nevada pale ale uh, i think it's the greatest beer ever great one um stand by that statement all and I, you gotta, you're not going to change my mind on it um but you ask most younger drinkers who wouldn't know it they really don't understand or really can't appreciate it um and it's a, to me that's a shame and um, so where it's going, I mean, 8,000 plus breweries, it's going in a, in a positive direction. I guess we look at it from that perspective, but for the breweries who paved the way, um, and that includes uh, the Sam Smiths of the world, um, it's become an uphill battle and, and difficult. But we, but, but, but I also think that, that there will come a day when those beers will cycle back and consumers will, you know, renew their appreciation, admiration, respect for, for those classic styles and we'll see a resurgence at some point. That, that's know. so great. Uh, Joe, I'm going to cut you off. And Robert, just to, to wrap it up, just so you know, I agree with you. And recent shows we've done this winter, there's this whole group of, of Lambic enthusiasts on one end, and many brewers this winter, small local breweries, were making black lagers. And there's, there's, there has been a demand for that. So, And also our friends in the homebrew circle, a local shop here at Bitter and Esther's, has been selling homebrew supplies through the roof. And that probably means that people are trying to make different styles. So I do think that, what, especially what you guys are doing, Joe, Merchant of Inn, guys, check out that portfolio. You know, Iyengar, Lindemans, Orval, and Samuel Smith. You might find some styles that, that, that are just what you've been looking for. Um, and Ben, I'm going to give you the chance for the last word before we close out. Uh, last word, I would say, to Robert's point, is that... Um, I think actually the the number of people staying at home and doing their beer shopping, um, you know, at C stores and grocery stores instead of tap rooms has um, large numbers of people revisiting at least the American classics um, in bigger numbers than before. I know Sierra Nevada is uh, one example where their pale ale has really seen a, a noticeable bump here in the last three months. That's great. Well, you guys, it's been a real treat having you on. We're going to have to close it out. Um, Joe, you get the last word now. What? <laughs> I, we, we're we're going to have you back in, in like two months. Trust me, we're going to do more of this. I was uh, just to Robert's point about these uh, the breweries. Uh, I was asked to do a, be a speaker um, in um, Massachusetts. So before I... Uh, what came down as a snowbird and it was for uh, home brewers and brewers that were trying to want, maybe want to get in business. And they were asking me ideas and my idea. And I, and this is, they, they, some of these brewers should do this now instead of they're, they're enabling the consumer by coming out with all these beers that they do. I know it's, you know, it's sound bites and stuff like this, but if these breweries, would just go and produce two or three world-class styles. They would make money. They would be sustainable. This coming out with Beaujolais Nouveau every day is not sustainable. And on that, amen. All right. Uh, can, I, can I say one more thing real quick? I, I don't want to make it sound like uh, – I think what's fantastic is that the American brewer is the most creative brewer in the world. Um, and whether it's a hazy IPA – or the hazy pale ale, um, the variations are out there. I think that's what makes American brewing scene the greatest on the planet. And um, but I do, I do myself. I appreciate a, a classic uh, American pale ale and a classic uh, West Coast IPA. Well, that's great, guys. I really want to thank you guys for joining in. And um, big, big shout out to everybody. Uh, Robert Hodson from Sheehan's, uh, 
Ben Keen, writer Joe Lipa from Merchant of Venn. Big shout out to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, who made this possible, and engineer Matt Patterson, who's helped us do this remote uh, recording. And we're going to say goodbye. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, have a good day. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.